You're listening to the Barry Egan Tapes on News Talk. I'm Barry Egan of the Sunday Independent and today my guest is a very wonderful Rory Cowan. Rory, Merry Christmas. Thanks for coming in. Merry Christmas, Barry. And it's, Christmas this year is a weird one um, because normally for me, I would spend Christmas with my mother. Yeah. Um, when I was 19, um, I decided I was going away for Christmas. I said, I'm going away. She said, oh no, she said, I want all my family around me at Christmas. She said, I want them all here. It could be my last Christmas. And ever since then, I was always thinking, oh no, I can't go away because <laughs> what if it was our last Christmas? She, she died last So she died November. last year, November yeah. of last so year. what was that, the first Christmas without her like? Um, it was a very strange one um, because as I said, I'd never been away. Every Christmas was always up at my mother's house, always, because I always thought, well, if it is our last Christmas, I'd never forgive myself if I wasn't here. So I always, I never, I always spent Christmas with her. But for a few years before she died, she didn't know that it was Christmas. So you'd go up and um, it could be any day. So there'd be no turkey and ham or uh, the Christmas dinner with all the trimmings. There was none of that uh, for the for a few years. But the first year afterwards, you do think about it all the time. Um, and that's what I did. And uh, I spent Christmas with a friend of mine, Annette Carroll, and Colm Carroll. Now, Colm, people might know him. He owns all the Carroll's gift shops around the country. So they invited me over for Christmas. I had a lovely time with them and their family. And I'll be joining them again now in a few days' time. Um, what was, what was Esther like, your mum? She loved Christmas. She adored Christmas. She'd get going in uh, the beginning of December. That was it. That was the whole thing. And um, she'd have the whole place had to be done up again. My father had come home from work. So all the house had to be painted. Everything had to be cleaned. Um, she'd spend all day down on her hands and knees scrubbing. Well, we'd one carpet in the front room, but she'd be scrubbing that. And then she would, uh, there'd be new lino put down. And the whole house, Christmas was the excuse to do the Is house Is that up. you at Christmas now? Are, no, are you I'm completely the opposite. A bit of a scrubber. Chances are I probably would. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, Christmas for me, I like occasionally I'd put up a Christmas tree, which is great. I put it up, but then you've got to take it down and you've got to put all the ornaments away and stuff like that. And um, so I'm not mad about Christmas. Um, I'm yeah. really not. But just take me back. You were, you were born in, in July 15, 1959. 1959. You, you can remember as being in your cot yes. outside, uh, in the pram, sorry, outside yeah. the, the house in Kylemore Drive in, yeah. in Ballyfermot. Yeah. And your mother was was going in at you. My mother and my Auntie Eileen. I remember, I remember that. And I have thinking now, am I remembering those things really or do I think I remember them um, or have I invented them but I do remember like I've, those memories have always been there so I don't think I could invent a memory at so young um, but I do remember them I, I remember that and I remember one um, and I know what it was it was the 2nd of February 1962 because um, and I know the date well because my brother was born on the 2nd of February 1961 <laughs> and so it was his first birthday and um, was that the the knock at the door? Knock at the door. The milkman knocked at the door, and that's how you used to find it because nobody had a phone. Um, my mother found out that her brother had died the night before. He had had a heart attack. He was only forty years of age. And it was the milkman. And, and the milkman, because my uncle Tom had worked in HB in Rathfarnham. He was a milkman himself, and they uh, said to find the milkman that delivers to Kylemore Drive and find the milkman that delivers to Churchtown and find the milkman that wherever else his family lived find the who delivers to Kylemore Drive and uh, knock on the door and let his sister know that our brother is dead because it was either that or the police knocking at the door 
Yeah. And that was the that was that the, the police happened when my uncle, my other uncle, died in uh, 1964. I was at mass with my auntie Eileen, and her husband was in hospital, and we were planning on going in to visit him that afternoon. My mother was down at the shop buying magazines and grapes, and I was in mass with my auntie Eileen. And the police came out because her husband had died in Vincent's Hospital, which at the time was in town, um, just off Stevens Green. And they came out to the church and it was a thing with Eileen Gibson come over um, go to the front door. And so you were five or six at that Five or six, time. yeah. And the yeah. police, because they rang the police station to say Mrs. Gibson of White Barn Road, her husband died and uh, could you, so they called to the house. The, the neighbour said, oh no, she's gone to mass. So they came down <laughs> and to mass to t- and that's how people used to find out. Either a police knock on the door or a milkman yeah. would knock on the door to say, because nobody had phones. Nobody had a phone. And um, when you were, was it eight and a bit, I mean, you could have almost, your mother could have called the police, the, 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 the Christian brother knocked the Holy... Oh, he did, yeah. And, but again, I have to point, put out this... I know like, you had a happy... Uh, I had, I was uh, taught by Christian brothers from, I don't know what the Christian brothers, what denomination they were in the, they were Catholic, but I don't know what organisation of the Christian Brothers they were in Ballyfermot then I went to the Marist Brothers in Athlone and the best teacher ever there Brother Anthony and I went to the Jesuits in Limerick and they were all fabulous this was only there was only one brother um, in the whole of my years in school that where this happened Um, it was 1968 it was two days after the Eurovision Song Contest Um, Cliff Richard had sang congratulations and he was beaten by one point by Spain and the following Monday, two days later, we went into school and the brother um, who was teaching us said, uh, was anyone watching the Eurovision Song Contest? So we all put up our hands. And he said, Cliff Richard beaten by one point. And then he said, does anyone know the song? So my hand shot up because I was always singing. Do you want to sing it for us? Congratulations <laughs> and celebration. And that's about as far as I got anyway when I started singing it. But he said, come up here and sing it. So I, I went up and I stood in the middle of the class. Now, there was only f- over 50 kids in the class. So it was a big class. And I started to sing it. And next thing, I got this unmerciful punch into the side of the face, which threw me right across the classroom. And I know it threw me right across because when I was getting up, I was seeing stars. It was black. And then there was these little lights just flashing in my eyes. And it was the only time it ever happened to me. But and your I face was, was against the radiator. I, yeah, because I was cleaning up and the radiator was hot and I could feel it with my hands. This is, and so that's how I knew the punch struck me. And he said, how dare you sing a song that represented England in the Eurovision Song Contest? You should be singing the Irish one. And because um, I was thinking, when I was getting up, I was thinking, what did he hit me for? I was singing the right words. <laughs> like, I couldn't think what I had done wrong. So I went home and told my mother. What did she say? She said, I'll sort that out. So she went down. And um, at those days, there wasn't an awful lot you could do. Uh, but she said to them, and like, she was, she was unbelievable this way. She, just, she said to him, uh, what you did is not, ex- I'm not having that. You don't treat me child. You don't punch him like that. He didn't do anything. He did exactly. She said he did exactly what you told him to do. And he was trying to play it down. And she just said to him, which frightened the life out. She said, "May you never see the gates of heaven," which apparently, well, at the time, was a big thing because people were so religious that if you said that to them, it was almost like it was a curse. And he said, oh, no, don't say that, ma'am. She says, well, I will say it. She said, I mean, you never see the gates of heaven for what you did. And she stormed off. But she was brilliant. She used to do things that really annoyed me when I was younger, when I was in school. She was always down. 
Yeah, I'd be looking out the window and I would see her getting off the bus with all the bags of shopping with the messages from town and she'd be walking into the school and I'd be going, oh ma'am, nobody, did she you were not she sent for to be you. Protected? This was what it was because I said it to her years later. She was always down and I used to say, ma'am, don't be coming down to school. No, I want to talk to the brother. And she was uh, like from right through until I went to secondary school. Before that, she, it was, she was always down. After that, it was... She must have thought, well, I can look after myself. But national school, she was always down. And I said it to her years later, ma'am, I said, you embarrassed me. You were the only mother that did that. Why did you do that? I'll tell you why, she said. We knew the rumours back, back in the day. We knew the rumours. Everyone knew them. Um, now, I have to say, nothing ever happened to me, like nothing. There was no, I had a very good experience with the Christian brothers and the priests. Uh, it was mainly the lay teachers that were worse at dishing out the punishment. And, um, but she used to go down and she'd say to the brother, um, how's Rory doing with his maths? And he'd say, oh, no, he's doing okay. And she said, no, he was doing his homework last night but and he was telling me. Rory deliberately fail his maths exam so he wouldn't, oh, go, into yeah, so I wouldn't go into the bank. Yeah. But my, going back to my mother used to say, and how's he doing Irish? Oh, he's doing all No, he was telling me last night and he was doing his homework. And she said, I was doing that. So as he would think, that child talks to his mother all the time. So he, they knew who you were talking to me. Him. And that was, so just, she thought, if anything does happen, it won't happen my child. Just to go back to the Christian brother, mm. you, you, so you went on and you worked in the music business with EMI. Yeah. And you met a lot of well-known people. Yeah. Did, did you ever meet Cliff Richard? And I met him? him loads of times. And I did tell him the story and he was horrified. Horrified that it, like... Horrified that it happened, but also horrified that it was a religious person that did it. Um, but this person, he was in the wrong job. He really, when I look him back on it, I feel sorry for him. Because at that time and beforehand, the, like he was a man from the country. And big families were the thing. There could be ten in a family or six in a family. But the eldest one got the farm. <laughs> yeah. Or the eldest one got the small holding. So the rest of them had to do something else. And they would no money. So they were all sent off to become priests or nuns or brothers or whatever it was. And they wouldn't have suited most of them. So this guy obviously had a job that he was in for life. He was a Christian brother. And he, I just assumed that he hated it and he wasn't suited to it because he used to teach the accordion as well. And he used to kill the kids because my mother says, go down and have a, we might get you an accordion. And I went down and when I saw it was him, I thought, oh no, I'm not doing this. But I sat there and other kids were playing and you could hear one wrong note being played all the time. And when he found the kid who was doing it, he walloped him over the head again. And I went home to be mad and I said, I am not learning the accordion. What, what did you want to be when you were younger? I wanted to be, uh, first of all, Elvis I wanted Presley to be, a, a, like, I wanted to be what I would say, a pop singer. I wanted to sing. I wanted to be involved in music, um, which was great until my voice broke. And then when my voice broke, I found I couldn't sing at all. Um, and I was useless at musical instruments because when I was in Limerick, they had uh, the Jesuits and that's who I was thought. What did they give you? You know, they, they, they say, give me a child for... Oh, that, that was, I loved because I went to the Crescent Comp in Dura Doyle and the Jesuits were fabulous. They they really were. They were like I had How's wonderful teachers. Has that philosophy remained with you? Um, oh, no. Well, it is. But like there's certain like, I mean, I would say prayers and stuff at night, even though I would say I'm not very religious. But and they would say the same prayers I always said when I was Which a kid. Three Hail, in our father, three Hail Marys and the glory be to the father every night. I always do. And I can't help it. Out, out and then I can sleep. Oh, no, I, no, no, I'd be in bed. And I'd, be, I'd go through my head and, I would, and I'd, I'd say the prayers. Now, when I go to mass, if I go to a funeral or something, I was at a funeral recently, I don't know any of the, the things. It's uh, completely changed since my day. 
And the thing like I can't stand is this the show of peace, like shaking hands with everyone around. The first time that happened. Oh, Barry, the first time that happened to me. I was at a funeral about 2012. Mrs. Brown's boys had just exploded really big on television. And I was at the, <laughs> I was at the church at the funeral and everyone turned around and they wanted to shake me hand. And I thought, well, they must recognise me from Mrs. <laughs> Brown's boys. I thought they were saying please to meet you and they were saying peace be with you. And I thought, and I thought... And I thought, this is dreadful. I mean, could they not wait until after Mass? <laughs> Just speaking of funerals, your your mother's funeral, yeah. what was your, your first, re- what went into your mind when you saw looked up and you saw Twink in the church? It was at the very end of the Mass anyway, for a start when she came in. Um, it was like I was up, after the whole Mass was finished and I was up just talking about my mother, just giving the final words um, about how much she meant to me and how glad I was that she was my mother. And just before I finished, Adele walked in. Now, I had fallen out with Adele. and it's, I'd fallen out with her the year beforehand, like nearly two years before that, um, over a TV project. And I just found that some of her behaviour was not what I was interested in. So do, 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 there's no argument to, to be made that by her being there was a, was kind of like a her trying to big, big... No, thing. no, if you weren't, if I fell out with you and we weren't talking and it was like I hadn't spoken to you in two years and I just wouldn't rock up to your mother's funeral and just, oh, and because the expectation is there that, well, you can't really say anything. You have to sort of say, oh, hello, how are you, blah, blah, blah. But, um, but that's not cleared in the air. That's not, there were terrible things said. So you can't just, after all that, you can't just rock up to my mother's funeral and think, oh, I'll, Thanks very much for coming. So when she arrived there and she came over and she came over to me, I just said to her, this is for family and friends and you're neither. And that was it. And that's the, like I, it's, it's not a big row. It's not a thing that we want to, I just don't want anything more to do with her. And I'm, that's, yeah. that's fine. That's it. Yeah. Um. Let's just go back to your childhood. You were, was it, about thirteen or fourteen, your your father your father works in the was he worked in the trade unions? He was. He was a uh, he worked in the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, which is now SIP two. So he came home one day and you were wearing your mother's dressing gown and you were getting your hair <laughs> done. I was. I had this friend, um, Justin. I write about it in my book, and Justin Mrs. was Cowan's a trainee. Yeah, Mrs. Cowan's boy. That's the name of the book, and Justin was a trainee hairdresser. And the first night I met him was at a Slade concert, and I remember this night. So it was the twenty fourth of March. It was a week after Patrick's Day, nineteen seventy three. Slade were playing in the National Stadium, and I was there. And next thing, somebody hit me over the head with a chair because remember Block H in the yeah. stadium was all the wooden chairs. So and Wasn't you could your move them, then. and he picked up this thing hit me over the head and then he said oh you go to Manildas don't you and I went <laughs> he said if I'd have known it was you I wouldn't have hit you but that was the start of a friendship with Justin and he was a trainee hairdresser and but of course trainee that was he was a sweeper upper yeah. and I thought well if I ever need me hair done Justin will do it this is what's going to happen so I decided I wanted me hair dyed I wanted highlights in it and he says yeah I'll do that no problem so he came up to the house and he had all the stuff that he robbed out Peter Marks all the dye and all the stuff the solution to, to do it and he said right we'll get ready I'd had a bath so my hair was washed and in that in the 70s the only person in your house that had have a dressing gown was your mother so what colour was it? it was pink it was you know these ones that you used to be able to pick I don't know what they called it but there was you could pick the bits out of it it was like a design that stood out 
candle wickers. I don't know what it was, but anyway, they used to have bedspreads made out of as well. You could just pick bits of thread out of them. And so I had this on and the only one who'd have slippers would be your mother as well. So would she had pink, pink, sl- well, yeah. pink slippers. Oh, I'm with sure like you were quite, quite so the I'm vision. sitting there with long hair halfway down my back. And <laughs> What colour was the hair? Was it I know my hair was just like mousy brown, yeah. Um, but I wanted some highlights in it, so um, Justin made up the solution, and he had done. He put them into. He'd seen how it was done. You get this the tin foil. You put a bit of hair into that. You slap the solution on, and you wrap the tin foil around it. So he had done about half my head in this, and I thought that the house was me. And my mother was working. My dad was working. I thought this is grand, but then my dad came in, and I thought he's going to kill me. He's going to know I'm gay. He's going, I'm 14 years of age. He's going to kill me. This is 1973, 74. He's going to kill me. And he walked in and Justin is there. And Justin was even camper than I am. And Justin said, hello, Mr. Cowan. And I'm going, oh, please, just don't say anything. And I thought, I'm dead. I'm dead. And my dad said, how are you, Rory? He said, are you going out tonight? And I said, I am. And he says, he took out, I think it was either... Two ten shilling things or two pound notes. I, I, maybe it was just two ten shilling notes. And he handed them to me and he says, well, have a good night. He says, and make sure you don't get some girl into trouble. And Justin goes, ha, the only way he'll get a girl into trouble is if he tells our mother she's smoking. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, please. But well, wasn't Justin also referring to you in the feminine? Oh, yeah. He did this all the time. He's called you. Yeah, the, she. And all she. This, yeah, she. He used to do this all the time. It was very, like, he was so camp, outrageously camp. But nobody ever associated it with being gay. And like, if we were going out, we would do lines from whatever happened, Baby Jane. Yeah. And he would be Blanche or I'd be Jane and something like Eat that. And he'd dindons. say, you can't push me in this. <laughs> if yeah. I wasn't in this wheelchair and I'd say, but but, but Blanche, you are in that wheelchair. <laughs> this type of stuff. We used to, and we had a great time doing it, but it was just teenage stuff. But my father didn't even see what was in front of him. He didn't see it. And I thought, okay, right, that's that's fine. So it was it was the strangest thing. I was sitting there in my mother's pink dressing gown, fluffy slippers and half my hair in tinfoil. And then Justin there with a comb in his mouth. Hell, you missed our cow. But, but you didn't need to come out because you were never in, were you? I was actually, I, I, was, I, was, I must have been because I remember in school in Benildas in Kilmacud and I had a great time there. Uh, there were these two kids. They were friends. Now, I... My my gaydar, I always knew, like, I'd know who would be chancy, who would be gay, who would be inquisitive about it, whatever. Like, and I'd know who would definitely, be, who wouldn't be gay. So you wouldn't try and chat them up. Um, but there was these two and they were not gay. They were just friends, but they were battered <laughs> because people assumed they were. And I just, when I saw it, the first time I seen them getting battered, I just thought, my closet doors are staying firmly closed. I am not saying. And I went through the whole school and nobody knew. It never came out. It was never a, a subject. I don't know how I did it, but I used to make them laugh. And so I, I got on with everybody. But when I did come out, but you, nobody you lost had... A, was it 14? 14, yeah. And that was with a, a friend of mine who was in school. And uh, so it was, but it was like just Was that a game changer? Or was that blue? Oh, no, it was a game changer. I wanted to do it again and again. Um, and but you it, had girlfriends as well. I had girlfriends, yeah, because I didn't. You know, when you're that age and you're, you're, you've hormones going, they'll just drag you every direction. Like, I mean. And when <laughs> did you realise? Did you feel that you were bringing the, the women up the garden path? I did. I thought when I was in my mid 20s, when I was 24, 25, I just thought, you know what, Rory, there's no point. Um, you're only leading the, with the girls on anyway, and it's not fair on them because you're not going to be interested in them like that. 
Um, so what's the point? And I just thought, because up to then I was, I was working in the Pink Elephant and you'd pick up people and it was in the, the 80s. Well, so what was could, it, 84, 83 like in, in Dublin to be like, AIDS really hit Dublin, Ireland? It, it, it did hit and it hit very, very badly because the scene was small because an awful lot of people weren't out on the scene. So it was a very small scene. And um, when HIV, when AIDS hit, it, it did hit bad because everybody knew the people. If you didn't know them personally, you knew who they were. They say, oh, such and such a person. And they say, you know him, he was blah, blah. And you say, oh yeah, I know him. And so everybody knew. And a friend of mine who only died a couple of years ago, James Bailey, he had uh, flower shops and he set up this charity, Friends for Friends, to help people because what was happening was when people got AIDS back then it they was, were going to London they, they were going to London cancer. or going somewhere and, and word would come back oh they have cancer and it's really bad uh, it's like a galloping cancer it's gone through them really quick and we all knew this is not what it was but they had to leave. they felt that they couldn't stay here because the stigma at the time was so bad um, but they went and but when they died James set up this charity where we would bring the bodies home so because the family couldn't like it was it was expensive even for somebody to die here but to have to fly them home or whatever get them home from London that was, that was extra cost and I remember there was one guy and I only knew him as Maudie that's what they called him I didn't know his real name I didn't have a clue but Maudie was lovely and when he died uh, what age was he? Oh, he was only in his late 20s mid to late 20s when he died and when he died uh James said, we will... No, he didn't go to England or anything like that. He died here. But James said, oh, we'll pay for the funeral. But he didn't specify <laughs> that Maudie came from a big family. So there was eight black cards or something, or six yeah. black cards, whatever it was. <laughs> the best of coffin. There was the best of everything. And then there was the afters for all the, fam- all, the, all the people in the pubs and everything. And this bit, and they just assumed, and they, thanks very much. And James didn't have the heart to say, no, we can't pay for all that. But it nearly wiped out the charity's funds, so we had to have another auction. We were always having auctions for, and the people in, like James would go out to all the shops in Grafton Street at the time, Brown Thomas and Switzers and everything like that. And they used to give amazing things. So people did help and people did feel sorry for people who were dying. It wasn't sort of seen as just a gay problem. What was it like for you at that time? I mean, like you went to the Hirschfield Centre... The Hirschfield the, Centre was great. The, the, the police were outside the gay, taking pictures. Oh yeah, the gay scene was brilliant, but it was underground. And when David Norris opened the Hirschfield Centre and it was a fabulous club, it was brilliant. And I used to go because I didn't mind. I was working in EMI at the time, so nobody would have cared if I was gay in the industry I was in. But there were other people like teachers or um, people working in hospitals, doctors, nurses, whatever it was. If they couldn't come out because they could be fired... Um, so they were very careful not to go on the scene, not to go to, to the clubs. But you'd walk into the Hirschfield Centre and you'd see the police outside in the unmarked cars and they'd be taking photographs. They weren't hiding and they were letting you know we're taking your picture. But they didn't do anything. They never questioned us. They never did anything. But that stopped an awful lot of people going because it was like some sort of an intimidation. But when decriminalisation came in, that immediately stopped. It was never personal with the police. It was just that's what they were doing beforehand but how did that make you feel psychologically I mean like the, the, I didn't the, care the but at that, the same time it was always that your love was illegal almost oh no, no it was and if you were beaten up no, which I never was touch wood but back then people were being gay bashed and uh, beaten up because they were gay and they couldn't go to the police because then it's around the eye on them 
oh you're you're gay are you <laughs> so they never so the, the report like there wasn't even being reported so the people who were doing it could actually get away with it and that's what started the whole thing up with the with the gay rights I remember because one poor man was battered to death in Fairview Park yeah and the people who did it practically got away with it because he was gay or the perception was that he was gay I don't know whether he was or not I assume he was but and that's that angered all the gay people that really did that just galvanised everybody and it was just no no this is not right now this has to change and that's when the whole um, gay pride thing started here really and you went off to San Francisco as well. When was that? In the, I was in, at a conference in EMI in 19, I think it was 84 or 86, I think maybe 1986, and it was in Los Angeles. And a friend of mine was going to Los Angeles and California, and I said, on holiday, and I said, listen, I'll join you after the conference. And we rented a car, we drove down to San Francisco, and we went to what they had at the time, the Gay Olympics was on in San Francisco. And they were breaking world records, but they weren't recognised or anything like that. They were fabulous athletes. And well, and it was a huge stadium, like Croke Park, and it was full of people. It was just full. And so I'd never seen so many gay people in one place in my life. It was unbelievable. But after, while the thing was on, they would have famous sports people who were, who were out and they were coming out and people would cheer them or whatever. But they also brought out... Um, all these people that were HIV positive or in the in the throes of uh, AIDS at the time, and everyone's cheering them, and um, they were being brought. People were walking and they were waving, and it was like it was a profile thing. And then there was other people coming out on wheelchairs and things like that, and they were in. You knew that this was their last year, and it hit me really because there were so many of them, and it hit me so I just thought, oh my god, this is going to come to Ireland. This is really going to hit big in Ireland and uh, it was just awful to see Did, did you have a, 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 a test at that ah, yeah, that, well, yeah I, everyone did like you were always getting them um, but it, it sort of made me realise the message that was coming out at the time was condoms, condoms. Yeah. AIDS kills condoms and that that's all gone by the wayside now none of that happens anymore but which I think it should but that was the thing that really that trip to San Francisco really made me think there's so many people you can't take a chance that somebody they, somebody might look healthy. You just have to protect yourself. And were you in? Like we we all loved up. Had you did you did you have a boyfriend or? I had a couple of them, but they never lasted long. Because you see, I always think that for somebody to fall in love and to settle down and to go through like maybe a couple of long term relationships, they usually happen in your twenties and your thirties or outside the teenage things where the on off things. Do you know what I mean? But twenties and thirties, you settle down with people. And, and why you can didn't be, you? Because at that time, we were brought up, it's hard to explain, but we were brought up, everybody, men and women were brought up, uh, no matter what your ambitions were, you're going to get married, have a good job, and you're going to have children. And then when we realised, us gay men and lesbians, when we realised this isn't our, this isn't our reality, there was nothing, we weren't shown, there was nothing else. So, I mean, if I got into a relationship, all I had to bring was my toothbrush. Because if it broke up, the chances are that nobody in my family knew about it. So we never had people saying, oh, you've got to stay together. You never had families on either side trying to encourage but couples is, to stay together. Dramatically. There's loads of, it's changed but I'm you 60 know, we now. We all know loads of people, loads of men and they're in long-term relationships. Yeah, and, you know, but you're, there's, you're there's a should have, for me, it's... Wealthy, 
You know, yes. you're on the TV, you're Mrs. Brown's boys, but all my that. my time for doing that, and I think anyone's time for doing that, for settling down, should be in their 20s or 30s. Maybe the, you might get by in your 40s, or you could be on a second relationship. I'm 60 now. Do you enjoy I'm living not, on your own? I love it. I love it. But my time has passed for finding a partner, and I, I never really wanted one anyway. But I don't want one, and, I, and I, I don't want one now, because I'm very set in my ways. And anyone at 60 will be. They will have... <laughs> I... I always find relationships to be compromises. And it's like, and if you're not careful, they become, which so often happens, because I see it with nearly all my friends who are in relationships, straight and gay. It's like a battle of wills. Like if one says to the other, uh, like I did know one couple and they were married for a few years and they're they're, they're lovely. But I just thought if this would, if this would never have got past this first conversation, but it did with them. Um, Her sisters were always in the house. They were they're all they practically lived there, and their mother was down, and the father, and anything that needed to be done, someone in our family there was. A, so he'd come in from work, all our family would be there, and they were making themselves at home. And he just mentioned one time, he just said, "Would it be all right if we had a couple of nights on our own? Like I don't mind them coming down, but could we just limit not every, not every night. night?" And she says, "Well, yeah, no problem, I can do that." He says, "If you do, if you give up playing golf on Saturday," and he agreed. And I thought the minute that ultimatum was given to me, I'd have been out that door because now it's a battle of wills. I'll do this if you do that. I, I don't like Chinese. I know you like it, but I don't like Chinese. I like Italian. Do, do you you get, don't like do Italian, so we go then? for Indian. No, I never get lonely. I never get lonely at all. I love my own company. And I've loads of friends anyway, but I love going in to my house and locking the door behind me and then... If anyone knocks at the door, I suppose you're frightened that they're coming to tell you somebody's dead. Ah, no, if they come, that's fine. But like, I'm at a stage with friends, like, and most people, do, they don't just drop in anymore. They ring and say, I'm going to be in the area. And I say, yeah, drop in for a cup of tea, blah, blah. And then that's fine. But I don't have friends that knock in, even though Gary Cavan is a great friend of mine and he lives right across the road. Does he, does he, he do never your hair kn- in the pink um, dressing gown and the slippers? <laughs> oh, Gary did me hair for years. Um, so I have a, I have a, I have a lovely life. I've I've the life that I want. I'm very happy with it. I wouldn't change it now for all the time. And where did China. that thing of not compromising come from? Um, I just think it was so many Is times. Is it that, that on you don't want own. to live a lie? You, you, you no, I don't want to live. If I had, uh, the only way I can put it is, if I had. Been in a relationship, I would never have left EMI. I would have fought you hard for to my get job. To get married and just live, no. live that kind of no, 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 life. No, 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 If I was in a relationship, I would not. If I was in a relationship or if I was married, um, I would not have left Mrs. Brown's boys because well, you have the... to talk, you have to discuss things with people. Like if you're in, if like if you're married, you have to. If there's life changing things, you have to talk it over with your wife. But what, was that not the big compromise that you wouldn't make? Two, 2000 and was it um, seventeen? Seventeen, yeah. You could have been still in it, but you, I could have been still in you it. Just didn't, you, you, I could have been still in anymore. it, but it wasn't me. But I could have stayed, and I would. Have, and if I was in a relationship, the chances are, I, nobody was asking me to leave. But if I had, if I had stayed, if I was in a relationship, and I'd said to my wife or my me, me partner, right. my husband, say, "Listen, I'm, and they say, no, hang on a minute. Now we need to talk this over. You're earning so much money. What are you? And you're giving it up for nothing, and blah blah blah. But if I had stayed, I wouldn't have done two pantos in the Olympia, which were massive. I wouldn't have written this book." which is doing very well, and I wouldn't have gone into Fair City. I would have continued on being unhappy or, or not being as happy as I am now, but, but did, I would have just got by. But, I would have the, done the, it. Did the money not compensate for the unhappiness? Not at all. No, 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 no. No, you can always... Money was never the big motivation for me, even though I always had a knack for earning it. But it was never the big motivation for me. If I'm not... I always think if, I, if you're not happy, don't do it. 
Um, I mean, but even going back to when I, I started... How happy were you at the end in, in Mrs. Brown's At voice? the end, I didn't want to be there. I really didn't. My, I'm, we were in Australia. I was told my mother had days to live. And I, and I thought, I'm here, first-class travel, five-star hotels. It's January. It's Australia, the middle of Australia's summer. The weather is gorgeous. The weather in Ireland in January is going to be terrible, all this type of stuff. And I thought, what am I doing here? My mother is dying on the other side of the world and I'm here. And I didn't like the fact that we were doing the same tours. Mrs. Brown's Boys for me was great on the way to being massively successful. But when it became massively successful, it became very boring because now we're in a rush. We're just going around the same circuits all the time. Um, the Mrs. Brown's Boys TV shows for me were starting to be the same. Yeah, um, every year you had to, uh, there'd be half an hour, 40 minutes of a Christmas special. In that Christmas special, uh, Cathy was having trouble with a man. We're wondering, is Winnie coming home, for, is Jacko coming home from hospital? Uh, all these things, th- there's a spinning Christmas tree of some sort. There's something about the Christmas tree. Um, Buster and Dermore trying to get a, get a scam going. It was just, there was, and then letting know what else is new. And was so there you any might point have five... in having a conversation with Brendan? Um, no. Well, what type of conversation would you have? He's I, like I was the Can supporting actor. Uh, he's the writer, and yeah. he's the and it was worked very well. So I mean, for everybody else, the the fans loved it. Um, everyone else, it was it really was just me. I started to get very bored. It was it was me. It wasn't them. So I know this sounds like we're breaking up because it's me, not you. But that's the way it was. After twenty six years, I thought, no, I can't face this and also throw into the fact that my mother's at home and I didn't enjoy being on the road I just I knew she was dying I didn't want to be in Sheffield or Australia or Canada or anywhere when she died I wanted to be there could and I knew she was going to go I didn't like want Bobby to Ewing no I didn't I just no I got to the stage where I just wasn't happy I really wasn't and I they knew I wasn't happy because when I was handing them you know it was in Cardiff I remember it well and I just said to Brendan at the end of a show one night I said uh Brendan, I want to hand him me notice. How much notice do you need? And he said, you can leave the end of the week if you like. Now, that was after 26 years working with him. So when I heard, you can leave the end of the week if you like. What did immediately. You want, what did you want him to say? No, I, just, I don't know. I just, but I, like I know when I worked in EMI, people left and sometimes you were delighted they were gone. And people left that you didn't want them to go. And But you'd always, the first question was obviously, why? Why do you want to leave? And they would tell you, and then if you wanted them to stay, you could say, well, listen, we can do this, or we can blah, blah, blah. Would or if you want them to go, if, you'd be delighted. He'd, he'd asked you. No, I don't think so. Um, but when I heard that, you can leave whatever time, you, you can leave the end of the week if you like. I just said to myself, I've made the right decision. Now, there was no row. There was nothing like that. Well, and I wish them well. Could you, could you understand why he w- might have been a bit maybe put out that you were leaving? Well, I think he knew that I wasn't happy there. You see, I think he did know. He must have known that I wasn't happy there. He must have known. Will you be sending Christmas cards or? No, I haven't been. No, I haven't been in touch with that. Like, I got lovely messages when my mother died last year from everybody in Mrs. Brown's boys. Very much appreciated, but I don't see them. Uh, it's like if anyone leaves a job, if somebody's working in a shop or a factory or, or an office and they leave to go somewhere else, you'd have the best of intentions. Oh yeah, we'll, we'll meet up, but you never do. You move on, you make new friends, or you make a new life, or you continue. You, and th- those people, even though there wasn't a, a, a row. But you just don't see them again. You hang, you start hanging out with different people. And that's the way it is with um, me and the cast of Mrs. Brown's Boys. Now, I did bump into Eilish a while ago, back in November, on her birthday. And it was lovely to see her. I met her in the Trocadero, her and Marion. And um, occasionally I might bump into Fiona, maybe once 
like it's over a year since I've seen her. But I don't see the rest of them. They all live outside Dublin anyway, so but no I don't see them. But no matter where you go in the world, where I mean, it's a it's a huge show. Oh, it's are, massive. Are you forever? That, no, that do you know what's brilliant is now? Is it like being in Coronation No, no, that. what's brilliant is uh, the best, the most amazing thing is when I joined Fair City. And especially when I've been around the country, I've been travelling all over the place promoting this book. I want to go to all the local radio stations and all the shops. But I, I meet all the people, especially around the country, and they just saying, they're calling me Bosco and they're saying, we love you in Fair City. And that's the, the and I'm loving that now. I'm just thinking, oh, this is great. Because up to then I was always getting, are you going back to Mrs. Brown's boys? And it's the same question, and you have to keep answering and say, "I oh, know I'm not. I've moved on. Well, I'm doing something else." What kind of man is, is Rory Cowan? Um, I think I would probably be. Uh, I'm kind, but I'm also very selfish. I I do look out for but you're myself. You're also quite principled as well, aren't you? I oh, am yeah, very principled. I mean, a lot of people would have stayed in. Mrs. Brown's boys. Oh, they would have. You yeah. didn't. I know I didn't. But I, my mother, when you you mentioned it earlier, she wanted me to work in the bank, and the bank was a very well paid job, and I would have oh, been set up for be life. Now. I failed my leave and ser- deliberately failed. I'd be retiring at sixty five. But that's the thing that what comes age you up. Know? I'm sixty, but I would have been there. I probably would have been. I wouldn't have been happy. I probably would have been an alcoholic, or I would have got out. I don't know what I would have done. But even then, I knew I didn't want to do it, and that was at seventeen years of age when I did my leave insert, and I deliberately failed maths so as I could get a job in a record shop and my mother thought that was a complete dreadful and awful thing to do because Is this from the Jesuits of just be yourself? Yeah well, no, It came from my mother as well yeah. but I think and it killed dad, I'm, trade, yeah, union. Uh, trade union but I think it killed them my mother because she had to leave school at 13 um, going into the secondary school you had to pay for back then in the 30s or 40s and she had to leave because her family had no money and she got a job in a shop and here's me that she forced to go through school, get a leave and start, and then I'm starting a job in a shop. So it was like, you're doing the same as I did. And she wanted better for me. But I was happy in the shop that I worked in. I loved it. And true to form, I got promoted up and with seven years, I was but the marketing still, she manager. But still, must have been even happier when you, when you became the big name that, that you are. Oh, uh, when Mrs. Brown's boys happened. But when I left, I remember when uh, I started working with Brendan first, she was horrified. She says, What? You were you were going out. You were meeting people like Paul McCartney and Tina Turner and Dave and all these Diana Ross and all them. And now you're going to work with somebody who tells jokes in pubs in Dublin. She couldn't believe it. But then she met Brendan and she adored him. She thought he was the bee's knees. And when Mrs. Brown, when Mrs. Brown's boys. Yeah. became big my mother was del- and Brendan even included her he mentioned gave her a mention in the show now granted she was a he mentioned her as a offence for stolen goods and but was it, it Gary Kavner invited you to, to, to meet Carol Hanna who was putting promoting the gig Carol who you know she's a friend of Louis she used to work with Louis Walsh and she promotes all the all the artists now she's lovely but she was doing a gig in Sanford in in Ranla and she rang me and she said I'm putting on this comedian he's very good will you come to the show and I thought a Dublin comedian I could, I'd rather sit at home and count my toes than go to see a, a, a comedian in a pub in Dublin. And Gary Kavanagh had been invited as well, and he was a good friend of mine. He says, Carol's invited me, will you come with me? And I said, yeah, all right, I'll go. So that was two of us going, and I thought Brendan O'Carroll was the funniest comedian I had ever seen in my life. I fell around the place, and it, was, it wasn't just laughing. I was thought I was going to vomit. I was laughing so much at him. He was hilarious. And he wasn't telling jokes like... Punchlines, one one liners, and he was telling stories. He was amazing. Like Billy Connolly. Yeah, like yeah, that that type of comedian, and he was brilliant. And then when I left EMI, I was promoting gigs for I was managing Christy Dignam and Mister Pussy and things like that. And then that's how I ended up working with Brendan. I put a gig on and I got him to do it, and it was a massive success. And uh, 
he asked me then to be his publicist and that's how that started and but my mother at the time was horrified that I would she says you're always doing this you got a job in a record shop and I want you to work in a bank and now you're doing, when you're doing well in that record company now you're wanting to work what with a comedian what age were you when your father died? I was 50 I was nearly 50 where yeah, were you 50. in your life then? Uh, I was working with Brendan yeah. and things were going well everything was good everything was everything was fantastic but my dad, he died. He was one of these people, God love him, I think when he was told he had cancer, all he heard was, I'm dying, and he just gave up because he died very quick. Now, that's a good thing. He didn't linger. He didn't, like, so it is a good thing, but he, like, I know myself. What age and was he? He was 78. Yeah. And I know myself because we had this conversation in the hospital, and I just knew, well, the Do end is the there now. you remember the last conversation you had with him? Uh, yes, I was driving him to the hospital. And then they had to put him, when he got there, they put him into like an induced coma, which he never came out of. But I was driving him to that, my mother in the back and him in the, and I was trying to G him up. You'd be grand. Everything would be fine. And we had these conversations and stuff like that. So everything was kept light. We were a family of, um, when I look back on it, we were a family of, um, there was an etiquette. And <laughs> I think our time was wrong. We should have been on um, maybe something like Scarlett O'Hara, you know, where things are uh, go unsaid and everything just pretends life is wonderful, life is polly wally doodle all the day, but you don't actually talk about anything. I think that was probably our family. <laughs> and did he ever ask your mother, is, is that son of ours ever going to meet somebody and settle down? And I don't think so. My father was always fine because a lot of the work I did, especially with Brandon O'Carroll, I was away an awful lot. I was away all the time and he was always very supportive. I think he loved the idea that I was doing my own thing and it was working out for me. He loved that. He really did. And um, again, because I remember with him, even as a kid, when we were kids, I was at Halt, regularly at Halton Sites in uh, Cherry Orchard, down in Bluebell, all over the place um, because my father was really heavily involved in travellers' rights. He was always involved in rights for people, workers' rights, so travellers' rights. that side of it, the principles yeah. would have so, come from oh, him yeah, as well. that, that's where that, that, that would have come like that. And I'm very, I can, I, with me, it's either black or white. It's right or wrong. And if I see something is wrong, there's no negotiating on that. There's no, we'll justify that or we'll rationalise this. No, it's wrong. We'll fudge it. Yeah, I, it's wrong. And don't, I, I don't like the obfuscation that goes on with a lot of things. And there's no way you've, you'll never get married. No. After all the trouble no. the country went oh, through. Oh, I think to, Ireland, to I think we have the most. For, for Ireland, is, Ireland is a fabulous country. I just think it's a brilliant, brilliant country because so much has changed, especially as regards equal rights with, with, with same-sex marriage and all the other stuff that's following on now. I just think it's brilliant because I was at a time where it was illegal. And then decriminalisation came in. And this all happened very quickly. It only happened since 1993, Do you think really. young gay people have it too easy now? No, but they have. I see them now and I just think, and I'm delighted for them. You see, if you walk around Dublin, you see people now, they, guys or two girls, they'll be holding hands. Nobody bats an eyelid. That wouldn't have happened in my day. Did it ever happen? Did you ever hold a man's hand going down the street? Not at all. Why in my not? day, because not at were... all. You'd have been battered. You wouldn't have got. You wouldn't have got ten yards. You'd have been battered. But now, and not only would you not get battered, do people not mind? But if there was anybody who did mind and made an issue out of it, everybody else around who could be straight, whatever, they would just hop in and say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> stop that!" They would put a stop to it. Now, Ireland is a fabulous little country. I love it. I just think it's great, and it's down because it's the people. And when that same-sex marriage result came in, and you're going, the majority of people voted for equality. 
they voted for the people. And again, that's going back to my dad, the trade union thing, Absolutely, my dad in yeah. his in thing. Yeah. I just thought the people here are brilliant. That makes up the country. That's brilliant. I love Ireland. I think it's fabulous. Never We're tempted to live in Paris or Berlin or No, they're all great to go on holidays. And if I was going to go anywhere, I'd go to live in Tel Aviv. It's a magnificent city. But I'm not, I like Ireland. I do like Ireland now. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't leave it now because I'm not going to find anywhere better. Because it's the attitude of the people here. It's lovely. I like it. And do you sit at home in your pink um, dressing gown and your pink <laughs> slippers watching the TV? I sit at home now. I've, my life is... I'm sitting at home. No, I'm, I'm sitting at home and I sit at home watching my TV with me two cats. That is what? my life now. I'm like that mad cat woman in The Simpsons where they're coming out of our hair and everything. I have two cats and that's my life now. And I meet people and they say, oh no, I can't come to your house. We have, um, I'm, I'm allergic to cats. And I'm going, oh please, not another one. I know some people are, but everybody, everybody these days, why well, Ireland is a lovely country, but there's an awful lot of people now. They want to be victims of something. I don't know where that came from. So I'm allergic to cats. I'm, I'm being offended by this. I'm, being, I'm just rambling here. But people want to be victims of something now. It's just and that, are they waiting changing. up for you when they, they, they give you a look when you come in late? Where I know they're great. They're, they're wonderful. <laughs> Brilliant. Listen, Rory, Merry Christmas. And, and Merry Christmas. And thank thanks you so much very for much. Coming in. That was amazing. Not at all. Thanks a lot.